Hey man, here is a little EXO episode that two kind of stories that I don't think even really have uh, any real thematic relationship to each other. But it's just, uh, man, it takes me forever to finish episodes of this podcast. You know, I've been doing it for years and there's only like 40 episodes, but I've learned about myself, like what's the best, because I mean, I'll just pick away at episodes for fucking months. Like, I don't know, there's been ones that it's taken me over a year to do just because I just pick away at it here and there. And I think what works better for me creatively is just uh, just whatever is interesting to me today. Work on that today and don't care about whatever else. And, uh, you know, then it's just it's fun to work on stuff. It doesn't feel like a job. So today, what's interesting to me today Firstly, is this story about Metallica. I was just online watching uh, mostly Megadeth videos and some Anthrax stuff. Like, when I was growing up, a lot of my friends were into thrash metal, a lot of my friends were into Metallica. But I was way more into Megadeth and Anthrax. I don't know why. Metallica, like, everyone loves the shit out of them and they just never quite stuck with me. Like, maybe I just have shitty taste. I don't know, I don't like Star Wars either, so what the fuck. But digging through this Megadeth stuff, uh, Dave Mustaine from Megadeth was the original guitar guy from Metallica, so that led me into Metallica. And I found this uh, clip of Metallica performing this song where their second bassist, Jason Newstead, just he sings on it and the mixing, for whatever reason, at this performance is all fucked up. So his vocals are way louder than James Hetfield's. And it's fucking awesome. It is so good, like this clip. It's worth going to look up. This dude is just, he's fucking metal as shit. Like, he is so hardcore. I'll play it before the segment starts. But then uh, I found an interview with Jason Newstead, and uh, he was talking about how Metallica was when he joined, where their original bass player, Cliff Burton, had died in an accident, in a a tour bus crashing accident. And, uh, what it was like within Metallica at that time. And it was just such a great little story. Like he had such a great way of explaining it. This weird little moment in time for this band that was already a really big band, but was about to become like the biggest band. And it's just, uh, it's really, it's really good little story. So uh, the interview that this is from has uh, music playing in the background. So I can't really properly edit it together or do anything fancy with it, so I'm just going to play that clip straight up. So that's segment number one. Metallica, after their first bass player had died unexpectedly when they were auditioning his replacement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I suppose to, to talk about the you entering Metallica, a lot is said about that period of time and the sad circumstances, but not a lot is really known about the actual rehearsal you had with those guys. How how would you describe the vibe in the room at that time? Because that you know when we've seen the, the bits of behind the music and things like that, where like yeah, it yeah, it's edited. yeah. Like, how, how would you describe the the vibe in the room when you walked in, like, Jason from Flotsam and Jetsam yeah. walks in with his bass? You know, um, because of the f playing field that we found ourselves on, um, that uh, an incredible, um, very special person, Jimi Hendrix of bass, in my opinion, uh, was taken. And so, way, 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 way too early, and his fate brought about my destiny. And that's a really, it's tough ground to stand on. And uh, it was very surreal to begin with because Metallica is my favorite band and I get a chance to go play with them. So already I'm just, I'm levitating, my head's spinning. It's just a crazy thing. In the room itself, in the building itself was very tense and somber and a bit sad and those kind of things. And everybody was considerably inebriated. Um, you know, like yeah, well they, yeah. I think that you know, I auditioned maybe 27 or 28 days after after Cliff actually was killed. Mm -hmm. Probably two weeks after they spread his ashes up north in California. You know, that I was actually in the room playing out of his amp. You know, um, so it was a weird vibe. And they they went to bed drinking, waking up drinking. You know, it's just the way it was. They had they were trying to grieve and not knowing how to do 23 and 24 year old men yeah. that had no idea or like really any kind of serious family structure within any of those persons' lives in order to build that kind of capacity where you could know what to do when it was time to grieve about something serious like this. Nobody had that. Nobody would have known about that or was taught that. It was that. someone it was just, from yeah, their gang. It was, it was their teacher. You know, their, Cliff was the one everybody else looked up to in that band. Every mm. band has a person that they look up to. Yeah. Or the leader or the thing like that, the gifted one. He was the gifted one. Even amongst people like Hammett and Hetfield, he was still the gifted yeah, one. So yeah, that's, yeah. that's pretty heavy. And so he taught them a lot of things through time. And so to have that teacher and that great admired one taken away like that was pretty heavy. They didn't care about anybody else. They, I could have been made of freaking plutonium and walked in there and they stay wouldn't matter. Right. You know, it just didn't matter. They didn't want anybody standing over there other than their boy. Yeah. And so, and the powers that be and the things that were going on, they're trying to keep the momentum going and the machine going and making up for Ozzy shows and all the things that had to be, that were committed to that had to be achieved or had to be resolved. They wanted to keep going. So you had to imagine how their heads were spinning crazy, grieving, ugly, and trying to accept somebody for a second and see if I'm even making a judgment of somebody that could play worth or not. Yeah. And some cats came in there that could play, you know. But I got there first on the day that I, the first day, uh, day I auditioned, I got there first early in the morning before they got there, probably like nine in the morning. And I waited all day. Lars wanted to have me play last. That was already his intention because he knew that I had, you know, because of the things that we talked about, tape mm. trading and correspondence throughout the world, when he reached out, see what's going on, my name come up with a lot of people. So he wanted to have me go last. So I waited and watched all the guys coming through the doors and come, from, come from the airport and get out of the airport, walk on with their base, have the, you know, look through the window and watch what James' reaction was to him. I had this little cubby hole dug out within their road cases. There's like Metallica cases all around me. But, uh, you know, cats would come in and out. People heard this story before, but it's, it's really pretty crazy. I remember one guy, I don't, know, I don't know where he was from, but it's all the way from the East Coast. So he flew all the way across the United States from one side to the other to the Bay Area, water to water like that and spent the whole day on the freaking plane. 
brought his plan, brought his base in, and he walks in, and because of his attire and his do and so forth, um, you know, like fringe on the boots and and uh, three color hair and you know this kind of stuff, wow. and and, 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 and Hetfield's already in like eight or ten Poor's lights <laughs> into the afternoon, you know, and he looks over this guy, you know, he's like next. Like, dude didn't even get Brutal. to plug in. Dude, he flew, flew all the way. You know, he'd been losing sleep and trying to learn the songs, Man. and his head's all coming over. He gets there, steps in the room, doesn't even get to plug in. Brutal. Has to turn right back out the door, go back and get on the plane and fly the way home. Jeez. <laughs> that was a long flight home. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. So there was a few of those things like that. And, um, and there was a couple of cats that I thought did really good that didn't get called back. I was kind of surprised. I was fine with it, of course. But <laughs> yeah. <laughs> surprised that they didn't get called back. Um, so Troy Gregory and Les, I think, and myself and mm. and uh, one other guy, Willie Lang from Laws Rocket, got called back. Halloween of 86, October 31, 86, I played the last show with Flotsam and Judson. And loaded my SVT and my rig and all my stuff into my old Ford truck and drove back to the Flotsam house where we all lived together and loaded stuff back in there. Everybody knew I'd already joined Metallica at that time. I'd been asked to play with Metallica, not joined yet. Right. And asked to play with Metallica. And we're all wearing black armbands for Cliff that night. And, um, you know, yeah, lo load my gear in and out of the thing. Nine or ten days later, sold out Budokan with yeah. Metallica. <laughs> so it's like, you know. I went from this to holy in about fast. All right, segment number two. The other thing I'm excited about today is Guillermo del Toro in general. Like there are some people who, who I just love listening to interviews by, regardless of really how much I like the stuff they make. Like people that just always have something smart to say. And Guillermo del Toro is definitely that way. Like this guy, he's like the smartest dude in the world. It's ridiculous. <laughs> like. Anytime I've ever heard him talk on any topic, he, he just hit the depth of his knowledge about just like weird old monster movies to Hitchcock to just philosophy and human, it's, it's, it's nuts. He knows everything about everything and he's just like super fascinating to listen to. I feel like I should probably, he, he deserves like a bigger episode. Like I should just spend a year just fucking listening to every word he ever said and compiling it. So maybe that'll come down the road somewhere, but for now, this is just this one interview that I found with him that has like no views on YouTube, just a tiny little interview, random thing from wherever, where he just uh, talks a bit about his life and growing up, and it's really fucking cool, because that guy is super great. And if you haven't seen uh, Pan's Labyrinth, the movie is like mind-blowingly excellent. It is so fucking good. So, segment number two. Guillermo del Toro.
so tell me uh, what the link is, do you think, between your attraction to portraying childhood in these kinds of situations? I had a horrible childhood <laughs> emotionally. I was not a child that got like beaten or locked in a closet, but I, I really had a very intense, shall we say, very intense relationship with the, the horror of Catholic uh, guilt and the Catholic dogma and, uh, you know. Mother was a very, very. It was like Peter Lorraine in Carrie. You yes. Know? Yeah. So you know, it was. I, I was like a chubby version of Carrie, <laughs> and 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 it was very difficult for me to get over that. And at the same time, I forged an alliance with the monsters when I was a kid. jokingly say that I spent 40 years trying to recuperate from the first eight, but to a degree it's true. I mean, I I really suffered intensely in the first 10 years of my life. I, I truly would cry uh, at the concept of uh, burning in hell or the concept of purgatory and original sin. And, and Mexican Catholicism is very, very brutal and very, very gory. So that, that also affected me. And your parents were devout? No, my parents, no. But my, my mother, for a while in my in my life, she was an absent mother. Right. And my father was, like me, a workaholic. Right. Uh, my, my dad, all the discipline I have for work, I got from my dad. At the same time, I didn't get a lot of my dad, <laughs> you know? But, but So I lived, mm, most of my childhood I spent uh, with my grandmother. Right. And, and she was, you know, extreme. Shall we say? And I've heard uh, a story about you reading Famous Monsters of Film yeah. Land, which was a, a, a magazine that was, I mean, beyond influential for yes. me. We're the same age, so it was beyond influential for me. And uh, it didn't go over well. 
No, no, no. I mean, I, I learned, I learned uh, to speak English by having a dictionary right. and reading Mad Magazine and Famous Monsters <laughs> and by, by reading the subtitles in, in Universal Monster Movies and, and, and learning what, what they were saying. So I literally was self-taught uh, at a very early age because I wanted to know what the, the, the pictures Right. said in the in the magazine my 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 grandmother uh, really hated that she was it was strange because she, on the one hand she bought the magazines for me she really was a very doting right. woman she was very loving but but one part of her was really really damaged by religion she, she there's no other way of saying it she'd love me and she would buy me my comics and my monster comics But she had a very hard relationship with that, and she would cry, also like, oh, you know, why do you like these things? And uh, like I would do a monster in plasticine or draw it, and she would cry because it's not beautiful. But she did love me a lot, and, and I loved her. And it's the same thing that I say about my childhood, about my mother, my grandmother. Uh, as suffocating as the influence was in certain ways, I survived my childhood because I had her love, right. in a way, you know? Don't know if I can take this I look back at, at your body of work, and I mean, I think that's a theme that, that goes through. It certainly through. is. It, it, it's part of Hellboy, part of uh, Pan's Labyrinth, uh, part of Devil's Backbone. Yeah. Well, yeah, because I think that uh, we, we, we have, um, you know, nothing that has happened in the past has not affected our present. I, I believe that. I mean, everything that has happened in the past, everything. <laughs> a guy dying in New Jersey without anyone knowing it has affected who we are right now and I do believe in, in everything being interconnected and and certainly in the bigger picture of history you know we we still live uh, under the shadow of the wars that we have waged you know the the, 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 the quote unquote war on terror <laughs> uh, the the Vietnam War the Spanish Civil War so not all these things are still hovering around us and And whatever injustice, whatever brutal act has been done in the in the past, it, it weighs on us.
you talk a little bit about, in other interviews, you've talked a little bit about uh, seeing death in a certain way because of your roots, because you're Mexican. Yeah. And uh, you worked next door to a morgue for a while, so you yeah. saw bodies coming and going. You say that you've had a gun held to your head. Yes. People burned alive, stabbed, decapitated, all yeah. those kind of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and you say Mexico is still a very violent place. Yes. I guess that all figures into the work that you do. I mean, it's all. I'm just trying to, to paint a picture, I guess, of of uh, of all yeah. the inspirations oh, swirling I'm around. Not, I'm, I, let me put it this way: I, I I abhor violence, but I think it's part of the human endeavor. You know, where, wherever we are, is part of that, and. And I, I don't like it. I, I, I can handle it in fiction. I don't I don't understand it very well in, in real life. I found a great quote from you. We were talking a lot about kids and childhood today. So I thought uh, this might be interesting. Uh, you said, as a kid, I dreamed of having a house with secret passages yeah. and a room where it rained 24 hours a day. The yeah. point of being over 40 is to fulfill the desires you've been harboring since you were seven. That's true. And oh, this is Bleak House yeah, that you're not, talking about. Yeah, it's now two houses. Well, uh, explain, uh, because uh, I've seen the video. Uh, I've yeah. uh, explained for people what Bleak House is. What happened is, uh, I, uh, seven years ago, when I was I was hanging up, uh, I used to have about uh, half of my house, the family home, was occupied by my collection of stuff. And it was really, really getting to a hoarding point, you right. know, where I, you, knew, you were moving between piles of books and stuff like that. So my, I was hanging a picture in the kitchen, and my wife said, there's no way you're putting that picture near the kitchen where the kids go by every day. And I, I, I have a, had a moment, and I realized, look, I'm, 40, I'm 42 or 41, and I spent all my, mother, my early years with my mother telling me what not to do. And now I'm married, and my wife is telling me what not to do. And I said, screw it. I'm buying a house. And I went and bought a house, and for me, uh, away from the family home. And I, I, I said, oh, this is too ambitious. I'm never going to fill it up. And now uh, I bought the house next door and expanded it. And it is a, it is a house. Uh, I do everything. I decorate it. I, I, I assemble the furniture. I put, place the books. I, ha I choose the framing on the pictures. I install the books. I install everything. And, and uh, I don't trust anyone else to do it, first of all. But the house is now a vast collection of thousands and thousands of books, uh, 7,000 movies, thousands of DVDs, thousands of uh, collectibles, life-size statuary. Uh, there's a bronzes in the garden. Uh, there's a life-size H.P. Lovecraft standing in the library looking at you when you enter. The, almost the entire cast of uh, Todd Browning's The Freaks mm -hmm. is around the house, like looking at you. I in, in life size. Life size. Yeah. I commissioned them, and, and there's uh, two great artists. Uh, one is called Thomas Kubler, and, uh, and he's incredible, and Mike Hill. And they are amazing. You can Google them. Mm -hmm. And they do life lifelike uh, silicone and, and uh, figures that look like the person. And so the house is populated by uh, Boris Karloff as Frankenstein being made up by Jack Pierce. Right. Uh, a, a Frankenstein face, which you can Google, you can put Mike Hill Frankenstein and you'll find it. It's about eight feet tall, the face, and about four feet wide. And it hangs on the balcony, oblique, uh, looking at you from the balcony. I have uh, 
uh, Frankenstein and the Bride of Frankenstein. I have uh, Oliver Reed as uh, the werewolf in Curse of the Werewolf, Liam, you know, and Secret Passages, uh, Secret Doors Behind Paintings, a room where it rains 24 hours a day. imagine doing anything else uh, or, or would it be possible for you to do anything else than what you do no it's come to the point it's come to the point now for me that um, frankly you know uh, is I, I'm, a lot of people are workaholics mm -hmm. which means they are basically escaping real life through their work in a dramatic addictive way I'm not a I'm not a workaholic I really live when I'm working Uh, is the only form of life I know. You know, it's, it's um, obviously I have my family life, which is very fulfilling and beautiful. But I'm saying, I, if if you removed the storytelling and the filmmaking from it, I would crumble. I would not exist. They say that for the universe to come to you, you need to be stand, standing still. You know, like you, you need to be not doing anything but being yourself. And I, I think that's true. I mean, I, 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 you spend your youth, your 20s and your, your, your 20s are particularly disoriented because you're hustling and bustling to get somewhere. You know, and there's a point in which you just mercifully start relaxing in your own skin and then, then just things things happen some of them not good some of them really great but 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 you understand that that you are now you uh camera they're they're going to take you away from me all right thank you listen i can't thank we, you we enough. could we could have a coffee after uh, we, <laughs> another episode of XO. Thank you for listening. I hope you liked it. You can go to keithcourage.com to find more of my stuff. Thank you very much. <laughs>